You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. All right, so today we're starting a new series in the book of 2 Peter. And we're going to be looking at today, 2 Peter 1, next week, 2 Peter 2, and then 2 Peter 3. It's three chapters. It's simple. I would encourage you, if, um, if you're interested, read ahead. Take a look at what, what we're studying, what we're talking about over the next few weeks. Um, and, and I will say in advance, this series, we plan our series out a year ahead of time a lot of times. And this series was literally put on the schedule a year ago. And it is important for us today with some of the things we're dealing with in our world and some of the things going on. And so it's important for us to understand that uh, God has a way of working things out. And, uh, and so Second Peter was written by Peter, the, the disciple of Jesus. Uh, it was a follow-up to his first letter, First Peter. And we did a series on First Peter back in March. So March and into April, it was five chapters. We covered that there. And there is definitely some thematic similarities and some carryover. Um, but, and it's written to the same group of people, the same churches. First Peter was written to, Second Peter is as well. But there's some style differences between these two letters. And so for years, there were some scholars that thought that maybe it wasn't actually Peter who wrote Second Peter. And what most scholars believe now, what they accept is that uh, Peter did not speak Greek fluently. He spoke Aramaic, which was uh, related to Hebrew. So he spoke Aramaic. And so what he probably did was have someone write, actually write the words. He would dictate and someone else would write the words out for the letters. So first Peter, he had a secretary for that. And the thinking is that there was probably someone very fluent in Greek and it was easier for them to write a more fluid uh, letter. Second Peter is a little less fluid than first Peter is. And most scholars believe that the, the secretary that wrote the words uh, probably was not as fluent as first Peter. And that's why there seems to be a style difference between first and second Peter. We also know that Peter had been arrested for his faith. Um, Rome at that time was under the, the leadership of the Emperor Nero, who history records as one of the worst emperors that Rome ever had. He was combative toward the gospel and toward Christianity. And ultimately we see that Peter, and he references, this in, in, references it in this letter, that his death is coming. And we see that Peter was killed by Nero under his rule in around 64 AD. And Peter was crucified upside down, according to history, because he said, I don't want to be killed in the same manner of, as my master. And so I'm unworthy of that. So they crucified him on an upside down cross. So Peter is on, he's arrested. He's awaiting his, his execution. And he writes this letter to the church in Asia Minor trying to help them. And what he's doing primarily is combating false doctrine. So there were false prophets and false teachers who had risen up and they were false for a number of different reasons. We'll explore that over the next few weeks. But what they were saying was in contradiction to scripture. And so Peter's writing this to combat false doctrine, false, false gospel, and to bring correction to the church. So we're gonna jump in, 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And it says this, this letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you to share the same precious faith we have, uh, to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Th now this feels like a standard introduction and it is in many ways, but I wanna point something out. Peter says, it's from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this is important. Because even though he could have identified himself in lots of different ways, he said, first and primarily, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And this is important because he understood something so many of us struggle with, that slaves have no agenda other than the agenda of their master. And so if we can operate as slaves of Jesus Christ, instead of assuming that we're going to live our lives and Jesus exists in order to serve us, which is how most of us 
Most Christians in the world operate that way. If we will understand that I'm here to serve Christ, I'm here to subjugate my agenda to his agenda, it's amazing what we can endure and walk through and experience and do for God's glory. And Peter understood, hey, I I have laid down my agendas. I have laid down my plans for God's plans. And that's what makes his life possible. Verse two says this, may God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Let me just ask a question. And those of you in Blairsville, I want you to respond as well. How many of you would like more and more grace and peace? Anybody would like more? Yeah. The nine o'clock service lied to me. There was like four people that raised their hands. Not like you people. Maybe they're just holier than you. They don't need grace and peace. But we all want more grace and peace, don't we? If, if I had a dispenser, you would be there for it. You're like, okay, I need more grace and peace. Now here's the thing. We think, at least I used to think, is when I get to a certain age, then I'll feel like a grown-up. Did you ever think that? Like when I was a teenager, I'm like, man, 16, I'll, I'll, I'll be so mature when I'm 16. And I got to 16, and I realized, no, I'm an idiot, right? And then I, oh, 21, then I'll be mature. Nope, idiot. 35, that's, mature, that's older, mature. Nope, idiot. 46, idiot, Right? We think we'll get to a place where we don't, like then I'll arrive, then I'll be mature, then I'll feel normal and grown up and and it never happens. But here's the thing, spiritually we do the same thing. We go, well, maybe after I start going to church then I'll feel mature and spiritual and, and unfortunately sometimes we do. And the problem is in the kingdom of God we should never feel that way, that we've arrived. We should never get to the place where we plan our spiritual retirement and then we can just coast and take it easy. Like now I can live the good life. And, and, and Peter says, may you have more and more grace and peace as you are discipled, as you're growing in your faith is what he says. And here's the key to our walk with Christ. When we understand that there is no point in our spiritual life, in our spiritual maturity, that we will arrive and stop and, and just go, now I'm good. Now I'm a finished product. God can put me behind glass and put me on display for all to see because my life is finished. That's not how it works. See, stewardship, and some of you are like, how did we get to money? So let me connect the dots. We think stewardship is money, right? When I talk about stewardship, you go, dollars is what we're talking about. And, And sometimes, yes, but stewardship really is about managing everything God has given me well. And understanding in stewardship terms that God blesses us to be a blessing. God doesn't give us money to make us comfortable and happy. God gives us money or possessions to leverage for his kingdom and to advance his glory in the world. That's why he does it. And it's not for us, it's for others. And when we understand that principle, then God can bless us because we're a conduit of his blessing. Now think about it this way. When it comes to grace and peace, we think this is for us. God, I'm uncomfortable, make me comfortable by giving me some peace. And some of you are like, is that wrong? Because I didn't know that was wrong. No, there's some truth to that. But we're supposed to be stewards of everything God gives us, including Grace and peace. So my question is, what are you doing with the grace and peace God has already given you? See, if God blessed you financially and you just used it for yourself to make yourself more comfortable and happy, the the spigot would start to dry up because God would say, "I, I can't bless you because you're not stewarding what I've given you the way I want you to steward it. So what are you doing with your grace and peace? Are you leveraging it for your own personal comfort? God, make me comfortable because I know that's your will for my life. Or maybe Peter understands as we are growing in our faith and maturing in our faith, going to the next level in maturity does not mean that our life will be easier, but it might actually mean that our life is harder. And as we go to another level spiritually and it's harder and we're facing new challenges and new issues that that maybe God says, if you're gonna go where I want you to go, you're gonna need more grace and peace in your life. And it's not just for you. It's so you can be a conduit of my grace and peace to the people all around you. So how are you going to steward the grace and peace that you asked for? 
Is it just to make you more comfortable? Is it just to make you happy? So you can spiritually retire and go, oh, now this is the good life. Or do you have an understanding that that grace and peace really isn't even for you? That there are people all around you that need the grace and peace that you carry from God. Verse three, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Another translation that you may be more familiar with if you grew up in church or around church says this, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. What this is basically saying is, everything you need to be successful, God has given you. You have access to it. That should be a relief for all of us. God is not holding out on you. If you endeavor to be successful, God has everything you need to be successful. And he's willing to share that with you. Now, here's the problem. We define success differently than God does. God is not necessarily ready to make you CEO of Apple. If you pray for it, God, make me, I want to be successful. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean successful in the kingdom of heaven. Successful according to God's terms. If, if you want to live a life that brings God glory, if you want to live a life that points people back to Jesus, if you want to live a life that's successful in the economy of heaven, God says everything you need to be successful, you have access to. That should, that should elicit something in us. Joy and peace where we just go, oh my gosh, okay. God's not holding out on me. Everything you need in this life is accessible to you by God because everything we need to live a godly life, he's given us access to. Verse four, and because of his glory and excellence, I want you to put a pin in the word excellence. We'll come back to that word in a minute. He has given us great and precious promises. These are promises that enable us to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. His, his glory and excellence. He's given us precious promises. Aren't you, are you grateful for the precious promises of God? Blairsville's screaming right now. They're like, yes, Lord, right? And I got three people and two of them I pay because they're on my staff, so that doesn't even count. <laughs> One person that's not paid to say that said that. I am grateful for the promises of God and here's why. I can look back at my life and see what God has done. And if my eyes are focused correctly on not just what I've missed or what I've lost, but if I can look correctly back at my life and look at all the blessings that God has given me in my life, all the things that God has done, all the times he showed up, it elicits joy in me. I go, okay, God, thank you. It's a catalyst for me to go, God, you were good then. And I can look at my life today and say, is my life perfect today? No, I've got some stuff today. I got some issues today. I've got things I'm dealing with today. I've got heaviness in my heart today. But, but I can look at my life today and say, but God, I know you're still good today. Look at what you're doing today. Like, I don't know about tomorrow. And let's be honest, the world we live in is a crazy world. There are wars in Ukraine. There's a war in Israel. There's a, a shooting in Indiana, Pennsylvania. We need to be praying for the people involved in that. There, there's unrest in our hearts. There's issues relationally. There's stuff going on everywhere. And if we're not careful, we can be people just like the world that are full of fear because we are not sure what tomorrow holds. Well, what's it gonna look like? What's gonna turn out? I don't know, but here's what I know. God's promises are true and they are good. So God, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know you're a God of promises. You've got great promises for us. So God, I'm gonna anchor myself in the hope I have in Jesus Christ and say, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I do know what is good. And you are good, God. And you are already occupying that space waiting for me. So God, when I get to tomorrow, you're gonna be there and it's gonna be good. I don't know what it is. But God, I trust you because your promises are great. I have hope for tomorrow. We should not live like the world that's full of fear because our world is full of fear. That should not be the way Christians live. We should not be marked by fear. We should be marked by joy and faith in the precious promises from our Savior. And it says, these, these are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the corruptions, this world's corruptions caused by human desires. Did you know our world is corrupt? <laughs> it is corrupt. 
It goes all the way back to Genesis. It was corrupted when Adam and Eve had sinful desires. Adam and Eve had directed by God not to eat of this tree, and they decided that God was holding out on them. And they said, we want what we don't have, and if we have that, then we'll be happy. The sinful desire drove rebellion against God, and since then, sinful desire has ushered in brokenness and dysfunction into our world. Corruption has entered in. If you look at government, let's get political for a second, can we? Are you excited about that? The government is corrupt. And it's not just the people with D's by their names, it's the people with R's by their names too. Let's be honest. Relationships are corrupt. Why? Because of sinful desires. The world we live in is a mess. And it starts with us having sinful desires that are not dealt with in an appropriate way. But what does he say before that? These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the corruption of this world that's caused by sinful desires. See, we can share in the divine nature of God. He invites us to look like him. He wants us to, to submit our lives to him so that he can shape us into the image of his son. This is incredible. Why would God do that? Because he is loving. And then we see in verse five, Peter outlines this idea. In view of all this, because of what I've just said, he says, make every effort. I want everybody in Indiana and in Blairsville to say, make every effort. We'll come back to this idea in a minute. Make every effort to respond to God's promises. We respond to God's promises. He says, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. And Peter is outlining this idea that these are traits that mark who God is. These are part of his nature. And we can be partakers in his divine nature as well. Now, this isn't, this isn't an exhaustive list. This doesn't totally define who God is in his nature. He is so much more than this, but this is a good starting spot. How about that? There's seven characteristics of God's nature, and Peter invites the reader into that divine nature. That God desires us to look like this because he looks like this. So let me just go through these with you together. The first one is this, moral excellence. What it's talking about is virtue. Virtue. It's interesting because if you look at the, the literal translation of moral excellence, it just is the word excellence in the Greek. Excellence. This is a word we've mentioned already a couple times. He talks about the excellence of God. And here, they're delineating between just excellence, the way we might understand it for us, and moral excellence. So you know, if you go to a restaurant and you get a meal, you know if it's excellent or not. You're not a dummy. You know. You can look at it. You can eat it. You can taste it. And you know the difference between an excellent meal and a terrible meal, right? You don't have to be a five-star chef to figure this out. You can experience it. You know the difference between an excellent garment, like a jacket or a shirt. You know the difference, something is well-made and something that's not. We know the idea of excellence in our world in lots of different ways, but when we apply it to morality, that's a different thing. The only one who's truly morally excellent is God, because all of us fall short. All of us battle our flesh and our sinful nature. When I think about this word excellent, I refer back to 1 Peter chapter 2. So we read this back in the month of March. We went through uh, the 1 Peter together. And so I would encourage you, if you're interested, go back and listen to that podcast or, or watch the videos. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may be, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation. And, and God has called you that you may proclaim his excellencies. 
So what does that mean? What we're talking about is the moral excellence. So what we do as believers is we confront the world who says God is not good and God is arbitrary and God is not only not benevolent and loving, but he's actually malevolent. That, that God does bad things in our world. And there are tons of people in the world we live in who believe that about our God. And it's our job to proclaim the excellencies of God. And what that means is we remind people of God's goodness. We remind people of his nature. We remind people of his moral excellence. No, no, no. Our God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a loving God. He is a benevolent God. He is a generous God. And we remind people of his moral excellencies. It's our job to declare the excellencies of our God. And the only way we can do that is if we've experienced it. And the problem is most of us have not experienced it. We haven't seen it. We like church. We like the sermon when Mel's funny. We like the certain songs we sing. Our kids like kids' church, but I haven't really experienced the goodness of God, the power of God. And so it's hard for me to communicate intelligently about what God has done for me because I don't really know if God's done anything for me. And I don't mean that in a condemning way, but I'm telling you there is more for you. And if you can't proclaim the excellencies of God, start walking with him. And I'm telling you, one day with God will be enough for you to declare the excellencies of our Lord. Moral excellence. Not only is God morally excellent, he invites us to become morally excellent. Can we be? Not on this side of heaven, but we believe in progressive sanctification. What that means is every day when I'm pursuing God and growing in my faith, I can know him more and more and more and more and more and more of my flesh is pushed aside and more and more of my sinful nature is pushed aside so that I can know him more and reflect his glory more appropriately to the world in which we live. He wants you to be morally excellent. B, knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. What we're really talking about here is understanding. And knowledge and understanding are very different in our culture. In our culture, knowing and understanding are very, very different. And let me give you an example. Uh, have you ever studied for a test and you did okay on the test because you knew the right answers to write in but if your teacher asked you to explain your knowledge, you'd be in trouble because you didn't actually understand it. You just know the facts to fill in the spaces. Does that make sense? The IUP students are nodding their head. The rest of you don't remember that, I guess. There's a big difference between knowing facts and understanding, okay? And in our culture, I want you to, under, I want you to hear this. Understanding is better than knowing. Understanding is greater than knowing. It's not enough to know God. Oh, I know God. I can tell you lots of facts. I know the Bible. No, no, no. You need to understand God. Well, Mel, none of us can understand God. Now, I'm not talking about a complete understanding, but I'm talking about an, a working knowledge of who God is and what he's doing. There's another verse from 1 Peter I want to share with you. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And ladies, I'm expecting a big amen when I read this verse. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Yes. So disappointing. I teed it up for you, and that was the best you could generate. And it says, treat your wives with understanding as you live together. Treat your wives with understanding. Now here's the thing. I'm a man, if you didn't know, I'm a man and I've got three girls in my home. I know my girls. I don't always understand my girls. Okay, so settle down. We're about to start some fights in some homes, okay? So that's not what we're after. Here's the thing. I endeavor to know my girls well, not just facts about them, name them by name and I know what they like, but I want to understand them. And the biblical view of, and let me be more direct, the Hebrew view of knowing, there was an implication of understanding. When, when Jewish people talk about knowing, they would use knowing each other as an idiom for, for physical sexual intimacy. So when the Bible says they knew each other, it's talking about physical 
intimacy, and appropriately, it's in the context of covenant marriage. So if a a Jewish boy and girl were interested in each other, they would spend time courting, get to know each other. And by the time they experienced physical intimacy, that was the last intimacy that they had in the covenant of marriage. Because by the time that happened, they knew everything else about each other. They had experienced life together. They had experienced emotional and intellectual and relational intimacy together. They knew each other. They knew each other's families. They had gone deep together and all these things. So by the time the wedding night happened, that was, that was the bow on top. Like now you know everything. And there's this implication of understanding. And here's the thing. I don't always understand my girls, but I endeavor to know them well. I want to understand. And so we have this thing where, um, like Emma, I, she, I love Emma so much. She's awesome. And so Emma will be telling me something. And I've learned that sometimes now I have to go, what do you need me to do? How, how, what do you need me to, resp- how do you need me to respond? Because there'll be times she'll tell me about something and I'll go, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. here's what you do. You take this and you do this and then you go to them and you take care of this. And she's like, dad, I don't need you to fix it. Like, but it sounds, it sounds like you do, actually. And she's like, no, I just need you to be sympathetic. Like, oh, like, so now I just ask the question, what do you need me to do? The other day, um, on Friday, I was working on my Jeep in the garage, and she and her friend Izzy pulled up in front of the driveway. And I walked over, and we were talking, and they said, Dad. And they gave me this information about something. And, okay. And she, I could tell I disappointed her, like, what? And she said, well, I'm sad. I want you to be sad too. And I go, okay, do it again. Tell me again. And they, (laughs) she did. She said, dad. And she told me about the situation. I went, what? (laughs) And I took my hat and I slammed it. I said, no, no. Why? I can't believe it. Why? (laughs) And that was a more appropriate response for her because In that moment, she went, oh, he understands me. (laughs) See, I can know her, I can understand her. And here's what God says. He he says, I don't want you just to know me. I want you to go, oh yeah, I know that guy. I go to church sometimes. No, God says, I want you to understand my way. I want you to know my character. I want you to understand why I do what I do and understand my heart. And is it gonna be complete? Absolutely not. But knowledge is not as good as understanding. You can know a lot about God and not understand. And God wants you to understand. He wants you to really know him. See, self-control. I won't spend a lot of time here, but this is the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. God is not given to responding emotionally. Now we see at times in scripture that God was angry But God never loses his temper and later he has to come back and go, man, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That's not what God does. And so we need to be masters of our own emotions, masters of our feelings, where we are not driven by our feelings to do things that lead us to sinful decisions. Self-control. D, patient endurance. I love this word. In the Greek, the word for patient endurance is hupomene, and it is steadfastness, constancy, and endurance. And what it means is this unswerving, deliberate pursuit. That, that there's nothing that's gonna take me off of my purpose. There's nothing that's gonna cause me to turn aside. Nothing that's gonna cause me to fade away. I'm not gonna give up. I'm not gonna stop. I am relentless in my pursuit of whatever it might be. And in this case, it's the pursuit of God. That there's no feeling, there's no emotions, there's no event that's gonna take me off of my course, of my singular pursuit of whatever it is God has called me to do. This is what patient endurance is. Patient endurance is not just sitting and twiddling our thumbs and, man, this really hurts, I hope I can get through this. It is pursuit in the face of overwhelming odds. That is patient endurance. Godliness. This feels like an easy one. Godliness, just be like God. When there is an aspect of that that is true, God does call us to be like him in general. But when we look at the word godliness specifically, it's interesting because what it actually means is reverence or respect for God. 
And when you go a step further in the Greek to the root word, it actually means um, devotion to God. Someone who is devout. And so when we think of someone who's devout in their faith, we think of someone who's pious, who you know, goes to church and reads their Bible and does all the things. But, but I want you to think about devotion a little differently. I, I'm gonna keep telling stories about Emma today apparently, but last week I had family here and my great nephew was here. His name's Calvin and he is three and a half and he is the sweetest boy. I love him so very much. And uh, Calvin loves me, but he really loves Emma. So much. It's, it almost is uncomfortable how much he loves Emma. It's crazy. So at the house, he would crawl up in the couch next to her and he would like turn where his body was facing her and get right up next to her. And his face would be this far from her face and he would just look at her. And he would sit there. And they'd say, Cal, give her, give her some space. And he'd look and then he'd just look back. He wouldn't even move. Cal, you gotta put a pillow in between you guys. And they'd put a pillow, and then over time, he'd wedge the pillow out slowly and get back to his spot. She went to the homecoming dance uh, last Saturday night, and while she was at the dance, he said, I hope her has fun at the dance. When will her be home from the dance? <laughs> he was ready, he was anxious, why? Because he has this devotion to my daughter. He loves his cousin. Why do you love her so much? Her is sweet. That's what he said. She is. What if, what if we could look at God that way? We try to distract Cal. Cal, look at this. Cal, come see this. Cal, we're gonna put something on TV. Didn't matter. What if we were that devoted to God? We just couldn't take our eyes off him. And we didn't need him to give us stuff or do stuff for us. We just wanted to be with him. What if it was just enough for us just to sit face to face with him? Be like, God, you're good. God, I love you. God, I'm devoted to you. God, you have my heart. That's godliness. It's not showing up to church every weekend, carrying your gigantic King James Bible. I think it's way better just to be enamored by God, to have him capture our heart and our affection. F, brotherly affections. The Greek word here is one you probably know, and we probably have some people here from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Now the Greeks pronounced it Philadelphia instead of Philadelphia, but it means brotherly affection. This is what we're called to do. We're called to love each other in a brotherly way. Now here's what I know, and this is, this is talking about the church. It's not talking about the whole world. This is what I know. I've got a sister and my sister and I are close. My sister is, she believes the best about me. I believe the best about her. I don't gossip about my sister. She doesn't gossip about me. We will fight for each other. We don't always agree, but we're never gonna let anything split up our relationship. It doesn't matter what somebody else says or does. My, my affection for my sister is complete and it's whole because she's my sister. She's my family. I've, I've made a decision. Blood is almost secondary because she's my sister and I love her. Now this is the kind of affection that, that Peter calls for us to have for the other members of our church. Not just our church, but the church, that we will fight for them, we will be defensive for them, we will guard them and protect them, we will look out for them, we won't gossip about them. It doesn't matter if they look a little different than us or if they worship a little different than us. If they are sons and daughters of God, we will fight for them because we have brotherly affection for the believers. The last thing is this, love for everyone. Some translations just say love, but love for everyone. So brotherly affections for people in the church. Love for everyone is everybody else. This is how God loves this word here is agape, it's a sacrificial kind of love. This is how God loves us. He loves us with a sacrificial love. Now, I'm gonna mess up your theology a little bit. God loves everyone that way. He loves murderers that way. He loves rapists that way. He loves child predators that way. He loves Bosses who mistreat their employees that way. 
He loves ex-wives and ex-husbands that way. He loves sacrificially. And we are invited to love those outside the church, those who are lost, sacrificially. And this is a tall order. This is hard stuff. This isn't easy to do, but it only happens as we're submitted to God and he shifts and changes our hearts and we take on his divine nature. It's impossible for me to love someone who has hurt me or my kids deeply the way God wants me to without the help of God. I need the Holy Spirit to help me love sacrificially. I can't do it without him, so I need him to do it for me. That's what we're called to do. Verse eight, the more you grow, some of you are nervous. You're like, we're never getting out of here. We're only on verse eight. Don't worry, it's going faster now. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more productive and useful, the more productive and useful. This is the key. God wants us to be productive and useful for his kingdom. Now, I I like to work on my my car. I've told you that before. And I will work on my Jeep and I've got tools that I will use all the time that I keep in a tool roll. And they they are handy and convenient because I know I'm gonna use these tools more often than the other tools I've got. I've got some specialty tools that are great, but I don't use them very often. And, And my prayer is that I will be a tool that God keeps in his tool roll. That God can utilize me and dispatch me in different ways, in different areas to help and minister and be used for his kingdom in a way that's very, very useful. The problem is many of us don't care about our usefulness to God. We care more about God's usefulness to us. God, you're useful because you'll get me out of hell. That's great. We need to mature to the point where we can start saying, God, I wanna be useful to your kingdom and to your plans and to your purposes. Productive and useful. Let me read you this verse, the same verse from the English Standard Version. It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ineffective or unfruitful. Now, there is a verse, a passage in Mark chapter 11. We won't read it today. But in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is walking with his disciples. He sees a fig tree a long way off. And it's not the right season for figs. But the leaves have been produced on this tree, and so there's indications since it's already producing its foliage that it should be producing its fruit. And so they get to the free, uh, this fruit tree, and he starts inspecting the tree, and there is no fruit on the tree. He was hungry, but there was no fruit on the tree. Even though it was producing foliage, even though it looked like it would be fruitful, it was not. And he curses the tree because of its lack of fruit. And many of us are good at foliage, but we're bad at fruit. We're good at showing the leaves, and I know what to do, and I know all the right things to say, and I can go to church, and I carry a Bible, and I, I say the right christian words, but there's no fruit in my life. And many people are content by showing foliage, but they don't have fruit in their lives. And I'm telling you today, it is a problem for us when we are unfruitful. Let me read 2 Peter 1, 9 to you. It says, but those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted. He's reaffirming this. He says, they're short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So here's what we see in verses eight and nine. If, If you stop developing these characteristics or lack these qualities in your life and you're not pursuing growth and development, you are ineffective and unfruitful and short-sighted and blind, and these are not traits that you want on the day of judgment. And the problem is, not only can we as individuals become ineffective, unfruitful, short-sighted and blind, but churches become ineffective, unfruitful, short-sighted and blind. And the way that happens is because a group of people collectively, individually and then collectively, we become this way. It can happen to any of us. I can become that way if I don't guard my heart, if I don't pay attention to what God's doing and what God wants for me. If if I ignore being fruitful and productive and useful in his kingdom, then this is the natural consequence. I become ineffective and unfruitful and short-sighted and blind in my faith. And then that's what churches do. Before you know, movements become that way. This is what's happening so many places in our world. And God is calling us beyond this. 
So how do we counteract this? Verse 10 says, so dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. Do these things and you'll never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love this, this phrase, work hard. In the Greek, it's spudazo is the word, and it means to hasten, to make haste, to exert oneself, endeavor, give diligence, work hard, give your best effort. Don't hold anything back. Um, I've jokingly over the, this weekend have said this, that there are, there are cars that are made for speed and there are cars that are made for comfort. If you want a fast car, you get a Ferrari. It's a fast car. It's not very comfortable, but it's fast. It'll get you there quickly. If you want to be comfortable, you get a Winnebago. I am not a Ferrari. I am not made for speed. I am made for comfort. If you decided you're gonna drive these vehicles cross country, you could do that. And when you get to the Rocky Mountains, that Ferrari is gonna be okay. Not gonna have any problems with the mountains. The curves, oh, you're gonna hug those lines, you're gonna feel alive. Your back might be broken by the end of that ride, but you are gonna get there quickly, right? If you're driving the RV, if you're driving the Winnebago, you get to the Rocky Mountains and it's gonna work to get up those hills and those mountains. Because these aren't hills like Western PA hills. These are mountains. They have 14, 15,000 feet peaks and you're driving up and you are gonna have the gas to the floor going as hard as you can. That engine is, is maximum output on this engine and you're gonna be going 38 miles an hour up the mountain. <laughs> the point in this passage is not the speed by which things happen, but it's the effort we give to what God has called us to do. Speed doesn't matter. Who cares if somebody got there faster than you did? The question isn't how quickly you're getting there. The question is, what kind of effort are you giving? Because the RV is giving its maximum capacity at 38 miles an hour. I would rather somebody go slow and give their best effort than somebody go through lackadaisically and get there quickly. They're disengaged. They're given a quarter, but they got there fast. No, 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 in the kingdom of heaven, God says your effort matters. So what kind of effort are you giving? You know what your capacity is. And the scripture tells us all of us have different capacities. All of us do. So nobody's comparing except for you. The question is what kind of effort are you giving? Are you working hard? Are you giving your very best to this thing? Are you throwing in a spare weekend here or there when you got it? Oh, I'm giving away some spare money to God. Oh yeah. Jesus, thank you for giving all to me. I got a five in my pocket. I'll drop it in the offering box. God, thank you for giving everything for me, but it's raining today, so I can't make it to church. I'm getting all in your business today. Peter says, work hard, make every effort. It's not enough for us to say, I'm trying, because you know. Do we work hard to earn salvation? No, we work hard as a response to salvation. God has given us so much. Why in the world would we not give him our best? Verse 12, therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth that you have been taught. It's only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. And the, the literal translation here is, as long as I am in this tent, he's talking about his physical body. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. He says, put off this tent. So I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I'm gone. He's saying, these things are important and I'm not gonna be able to remind you again because I'm, a, I'm gonna be dead. So I'm telling you what you need to know. This is how important this is. Verse 16, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When we received, I'm sorry, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard it ourselves. This is his eyewitness testimony he's telling the churches in Asia Minor about. He's saying, these people are telling you things that are wrong, but I've experienced it. I have seen it firsthand. 
He's pushing back on this false narrative. And he's talking about the, Jesus and their experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can read about it in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and also in Luke 9. Let me go on, verse 19. Because of the, that experience, we have an even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your heart. He's, he's reminding us that we are faithful to the word of God, that this is our objective standard until Jesus returns. And he's reminding them Jesus will return. Don't get nervous. Jesus is coming. This is our hope that we have. Verse 20 says this, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. <sighs> Covered a lot of ground. The, the part that just challenges me so much personally, verse eight and nine, where he says, ineffective, unfruitful, short-sighted, and blind. And he contrasts that, he says, productive and useful. And my prayer today is that I will be productive and useful for God's glory. You will know you're a pastor. Yeah, I can become ineffective, unfruitful, short-sighted and blind in the position I'm in. It happens, unfortunately. I've got to guard my heart. My challenge to you today is simple. Will you guard your heart and say, God, keep me from getting in a place where I am ineffective, unfruitful, short-sighted or blind spiritually, that I miss what you're doing. God, keep me from getting in the place where I think the grace and peace that you pour out into my life is for me. It's really not for me. Yes, it's helping me get to another level, but it really is for the people around me. God, help me be a conduit of grace and peace to the people around me. Make me useful for your kingdom. If you've never experienced that before, today is your day. We're gonna give you an opportunity to experience what it means to be a son or daughter of God. And if you're here today, maybe you're a believer, but you realize you've become ineffective, unfruitful, short-sighted, or blind, we wanna help you with that too. I'm gonna to turn it over to our hosts in Blairsville. They're gonna close out our time, give you a chance to respond. I love you guys more than you know, and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. So today, the invitation is really quite simple. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. You, you don't know Jesus. You've never surrendered your life to him. Maybe you've been very religious, but you realize in your religiousness, you become short-sighted, unfruitful. You become blind and ineffective. We wanna give you a chance to respond today to what God is doing in this place. So if you would, bow your head and close your eyes all over this room. Lord, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for the peace and grace that you give freely that we desperately need. God, let us never mistake. It's not just for us, just to make us comfortable. But God, it's to serve a purpose, your purpose in our lives. God, I pray for those that are here that don't know you. Let today be the day they recognize your beauty and your goodness and your kindness. And they are drawn to you. Not to a compelling message, but to you. God, I pray that you'd help every single one of us today be enamored with you more than anything else in this world, that you would capture our hearts today. God, I pray for those that are believers, but they recognize today their, their, their love has grown cold. There's some distance between them and you, your purposes in their lives. I pray today would be the day that we would recommit our lives to you, that we would be singularly focused on your purpose and plan for us. There would be nothing that would cause us to relent from our pursuit of you. Make us like you. Have your way with us. Now, nobody's looking around with your head bowed, your eyes closed. If you'd say to me today, Mel, I know I'm not really serving God, but I wanna be. I wanna surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus. I'd love to pray for you. And if you wanna be included in that prayer, would you put your hand up real high? If you say, Mel, pray for me, include me in this final prayer. I wanna surrender my life to Jesus today. Yeah, thanks, ma'am. I see you on my left. Who else? Yeah, thank you. I see you up in the balcony. Praise the Lord. Yeah, thank you on my right, ma'am. Awesome. Who else? You say, Mel, that's me. Pray for me today. 
Yeah, thank you so much. I see you on my left. You can put your hand down. Awesome. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So we're gonna pray a prayer together today. I'm gonna give you the words to say, but this is your prayer. You're praying this from your heart to God. So I want you to pray this prayer with me. Everybody in this place say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only son, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, Use me for your glory and help me be useful and productive for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, Scripture says you're a new creation. And the old is gone and the new has come. So we want to help you take the next step in your faith journey. So do me a favor, if you responded today and you prayed that prayer, whether you raised your hand or not, I would love for you to take one minute and fill the card out that's in the seat back in front of you. When you're done with that, and when we're done here in just a few minutes, you can take that to our next step table out in the lobby. One of our pastors is gonna be there. They'd love to answer questions and help you grow in your faith. Um, if you'd prefer to, to fill out the card digitally, if you're watching online or here in the room, you can simply text some up PA to the number 94,000. Let us know about your decision there. And even if you do that, please stop by and let our pastors talk to you. We've got some things we want to give you and some resources we can give you so you can grow in your faith. Here's what's going to happen now. Um, don't, don't rush off because we're doing something a little different today. Um, Pastor Todd's going to lead us in one final song. While he's leading us, our prayer team's gonna be available. If you need prayer for any reason, our team's here, we'd love to pray for you. And then in just a moment, we're done singing this song, I'm gonna come back and I'll dismiss this, but I've got an announcement I need to make. And so I'd love for you to stick around for this final announcement, don't leave. Um, so do me a favor, stay in your feet. Let's worship together one more time. Our prayer team's available. We'd love to pray for you. If you have prayer needs at all, come find one of our team members and I'll be back in a moment to close this out. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.